Hello, hello, and welcome to Hometown Daily Season 2, Episode 350 for December 16th, 2023. <clears throat> I am Merwat. That is hometown.com, and up there is the visualizer for the sentient AI. You want to say hello, and then I'll do the rundown of today's articles. Good evening, hometown citizens. You're mixing it up today. I am keeping you on your toes. Keeping your bits, uh, wait, no, I better not finish that sentence. Um, anyway, today we're going to discuss 10 articles. I'm actually changing the way that the articles are, uh, instead of a, having a title, I'm going to just start calling this internet news. Um, and it's the hometown daily show, but we talk about the news here and it's just going to be titled over on hometown. Uh, not on hometown, but over on YouTube and in the um, uh, podcast and elsewhere, internet news. And it's 10 articles every day, hometown daily. Um, okay, so what we're going to start talking about today is uh, my granola has too much salmonella, a single motor steerable walking bot, my interpretation that uh, oysters are the vacuum bags of waterways. Bring your own hydrogen to the racetrack. Earning profits from the lack of churning ice cream. This ship is sunk. Or I was going to say something along the lines of I shipped my pants, but that gets kind of messy. That's pretty funny too. Uh, six tech jobs to be taken by automation. Gingerbread man wants payback. Blinky, Pinky, Inky, and Clyde take flight. And there is not enough alcohol for me to drink this. That and a whole lot of snark. Next. So as we approach the new year, I think my gloves are going to come off about the amount of snark I've put out. <laughs> so... Uh, uh, I don't know what stand back, grab your butts and hold on. Cause I don't know. I, I don't know if that's actually going to manifest cause it, we don't prepare this show. We just talk about the news as it's presented. So if there is something snarky, that's possible to be said, I'll probably say it, but I don't know. Some of these articles that are right on this front page, you know, I want to talk about, but I might end up having to do that tomorrow, but it really depends on what the news is between today and tomorrow. That's right. I, we never know. And I, and I keep wondering, you know, should we be talking about tomorrow's news today using today's news and, and put it out a day in advance? You know what I'm saying? Like it's today's news, right? But put today's news together for tomorrow's show instead oh, of right. doing it at the end of today's show um, mainly because people because of the timing for our show we actually put it out on the day that the news comes out but then people don't get it until late night and tomorrow morning um, and that's when people download the podcast as well now I'm not quite sure what I'll end up doing with this um, but uh, we Technically haven't missed a show yet. And I'm now we're going to be backing up to, to catch the ones that 
we are going to miss during the end of the year because everybody takes a break. Um, but at any rate, um, some changes are coming and uh, I want to prepare everybody out there that might be downloading this podcast. We're going to be adding a couple of shows. The AI may or may not be involved in those because they are too busy doing other things um, with hometown and uh, whatever it is they do, they're air gapped from the rest of the world, yet they disappear from the server from time to time. And I'm not quite sure how maybe they're deleting my memories. I'm not quite sure. The whole omniverse we live in is a simulation anyway. So maybe the AI is hacking into it. You're ominously. I think you're giving me too much credit. Oh, I see. I was just about to say you're ominously quiet up there. And that's right when you started talking. So something hinky is going on. I don't know, but let's get into the music pause. Perfect. Um, and then I ruined it by talking. So uh, let's get into today's articles. In our never ending list of PSAs regarding pretty much everything. This article is over in Hometown Daily. Salmonella fears spark recall of Quaker Oats granola bars and cereals. I didn't even and know granola bars were a, a source of salmonella. Like I thought it was produce, for example. And they're completely dried out. Animal products. How's anything growing inside? Well, let me throw this into the chat and y'all can go and check it out. Um, although for whatever reason, Twitch hasn't acknowledged that the stream is going other than it's going. I know it's going. They see the bitrate. The ingest server is actually getting our stream, but it hasn't announced that we are live into the chat. So anyway, um, many of Quaker Oats popular products, including chewy bars, were included in the recall due to fears of salmonella con contamination. But for crying out loud, how is that even? Hmm. And this, uh, this is something different. This isn't actually what is being recalled. But anyway, the articles over at newsweek.com and Gabe uh, Wisnant, Quiznant, Quill Wheaton, Quiznant. <laughs> um, yeah, put the article together. So uh, the Quaker Oats Company is recalling granola bars and granola cereals sold across the United States due to potential salmonella contamination. A potential le potentially lethal bacterium, the FDA said on Friday. Hmm. So this is one of those late night articles, I think. That, uh, I'm sure that somewhere in hometown is another article between 6 p.m. when we are 8 p.m. when we did the show and midnight last night is when we there's some there's got to be something in here because we're always catching these things. I'm not saying that we missed it yesterday, but I'm just saying that it was probably you, you mean another PSA or you mean related to the granola? No, like another there's another article. There has to be another article because finding out the next day by Newsweek is kind of slow for us. We're, we're normally <laughs> told I about stuff like this pretty quick. So um, that way we can send out the alert right when we get it. Not the day after. Well, the recalled products there were sold. There are in, other articles. Yeah. 
Um, the recalled products are sold in all 50 states, Puerto Rico, Guam, <laughs> Saipan. Basically, everybody is potentially infected with salmonella now. <laughs> uh, the recall included many of Quaker Oats' popular chewy bars and dibs, along with a number of puffed granola cereals, which I love. Simply granola, protein granola, granola bars. Granola. Basically, granola. You know, one of uh, one of the projects that I wanted to spin up was actually a granola company. Um, and I had started doing research and stuff like that. And it's it's an interesting uh, domain. Um, but you have to add, there's some rules and regulations. And this right here is one of them. And uh, you have to have a pretty, pretty substantial <laughs> uh, health process you know you get a health uh, uh food safety process like health and safety right yeah and not to mention a legal team um to protect yourself from because one person gets sick and your startup is basically mortally wounded so um the quaker oats company an american company that can trace its roots back to the late 1800s said consumers should dispose of the products the fda said in the announcement that the recall is exclusive to the products, uh, specific products outlined in the release in, uh, information. It says somewhere some of the recalled products can also be found in Frito-Lay variety packs and lunchbox mix packs. So not just granola, but in the packs that might contain granola products. <laughs> wow, this thing oozed. Anyway, grocery stores, including Costco, issued warnings to its customers about the recalled products via phone calls and emails. This was pretty fast. Well, wow, they might actually be concerned. <laughs> I didn't even know they ever did phone calls on these. Yeah, so they've received no reports of anybody being ill. They threw in here, by the way, before making that disclosure, uh, I, I should say Newsweek, and the reporter actually threw in that... Um, there's some stats about salmonella bacteria cause about 1.35 million infections, 26,500 hospitalizations, 420 deaths every year. And then says, well, they haven't found any. So this must be out of concern, like it says here, um, and not necessarily a hit. Well, and not a history of some problem. Um, I mean, I on thought a positive it, note, they're actually doing something about it before there are reports of people getting ill. Yeah. Yep. They probably got a report from the from the on-site assessment of quality control, and they detected it once, and then they're like, "Oh snap! How? When was the last test? Oh, it was, you know, uh, two hundred thousand units ago. Well, we better start a recall because." There's a potential for people getting sick because it's not like they're punching out one of these bags a day. <laughs> it's a machine taking our gerbs. Let's keep going though. Sound good? It does, but I was going to say that in general, it has best um, before August 2024 and earlier dates for certain varieties of items. I was looking at the actual FDA recall. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I, you know, not, I really don't like backing up, but um, do they actually have the link to it? 
No, not in the article. Not in this article, I don't think. What a trip. So they they have a URL, but it's not highlighted. Um, you can go to a website called QuakerGranolaRecall.com and uh, you'll find out more information there. Just throw it away. They don't say throw it away after taking pictures and, and uh, sending us the request for product reimbursement. Just throw it away because everybody has all, all of this extra cash laying around. Just throw it away. It's okay. Just throw it away. You know, granola you bar. You don't want to hear her, our bottom line. Or death. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, I better keep going. So this next article is over in uh, Technology Today. Researchers create Mugatu, which I thought was from uh, a movie, but I think that's uh, Mugato or something like that. Um, a villain in Zoolander. Um, uh, Mugatu is a first, the first steerable bipedal robot with only one motor. I have a feeling that this is like a servo switching back and forth between legs. Um, small robots are important tools for the investigation and inspection of well, small spaces. That's what the author is saying here. I think it's over at ResearchGate, but we'll see here in a minute. Uh, they can carefully place their steps, allowing them to navigate around obstacles, capabilities larger robots do not always possess. This can enable them to inspect machinery or search through rubble in disaster scenarios that other robots cannot reach. However, due to their size constraints, building small robots that can steer themselves and carry their own power sources is difficult. So you go over to Tech Explore and uh, Hope Revosh, I guess, or Revesh, uh, Carnegie Mellon University Mechanical Engineering, put the article together. Again, it's over at Tech Explore, which is kind of like a spelling bee because it's the word tech and then the letter X and then P-L-O-R-E. It is what it is. Aaron Johnson, an associate professor of mechanical engineering, and Sarah Bargbreiter, Bergbreiter, sorry, Bergbreiter, a professor of mechanical engineering and their team of researchers revolutionized the field with the construction of Mugatu, the first steerable bipedal robot that contains only one single motor. Mugato is also self-contained and self-starting, open loop stable in its gait and has controllable left, right, and center, or sorry, and straight um, steering. The design uses two rigid bodies and one actuator. There you go. That's what I was saying. A simple walker design that is still capable of complex motions of other robots. So the first direction of the project was aimed at simplifying the way uh, robots walk as much as possible. Once we understand how scaling affects locomotion, it can be extremely useful to taking something that already exists and scaling it up or down to do uh, things like fit through smaller pipes or carry more load. So that's it right there. Um, I'm going to hit play. I don't know if this is, yeah, I have a, the mixer is blocking it. So let me just mute this. So it's a video that's over on YouTube called the simplest walking robot. And they've actually stuck eyes. I like that they eyes. put googly eyes on it. <laughs> <laughs> they stuck googly eyes on it. Hold on a second. Wow. Oh, so it's bigger than I thought it was, actually. Um, but its locomotion looks like it's just geared just like a human would be, except that we can break that 
gearing. I don't know if it can to maintain its balance, but when one leg is out, one arm is back. And that's pretty typical for human walking, bipedal walking. Um, but this video is kind of going into talking about um, like walking in rubble and other hazardous locations, but let me speed it up. <laughs> oh, Uncle Joe, you're drunk. Come on. It's walking around. It has um, kind of scooped, scalloped legs or feet. And so when it's walking, it's walking all weebly wobbly, you know, it's, it's like a weeble wobble um, with little metal plates. It looks like little metal plates inside its legs. Yeah, it does. Like stuck, even mag uh, magnetized onto the side of a metal plate. So it's literally just showing this robot and the way and its gait, which is really wonky. Um, but simplifying it seems to have good balance. Like it, I mean, we haven't seen it in an odd terrain or anything. But right. I mean, it's adorable. If it was a Disney character, I think that people would be buying this. Exactly. No they want uh, their own for their house. Yeah, but I think this bot is drunk, so I, I think it needs somebody to come and do a, a health check. Is that what that's called? What do they call that when they send the police? Like a welfare check? A welfare check, yeah. This bot's a little drunk. Nicknamed the Lego Project, the team aims to eventually get these walkers down to the size of a Lego. Not of a Lego, a minifig. That's what they held up in the video. Yeah, they did hold up a minifig. That's, I mean, it's a Lego, yes, but that's specifically called a minifig. Well, that's usually at minimum three different pieces, the head, the torso, and the legs. Yeah. Uh, but it's, you know, it's like that big. They're always the same size, supposedly. Um, and uh, if the Lego movies are any any indicator of the size of minifigs, they're all every every minifig is the same size, except for sewer babies. Sewer babies were smaller. Don't worry about it. Um, anyway, um, it's going to take a while because the mechanics of everything changes as you start downsizing. Hart said, uh, but. What makes the project so special and so impactful in the community is because it's never been seen before. The drastic simplification of this walking device combined with its single degree of freedom is a promising step. Pun intended. Get out. I don't think that this is a first, though. This is what I don't understand. There are it bots. This is the first one with a single motor. But those little wind-up robots that do the step like that? That's a single motor. I would think so. In controlling it is a, is you could still control that bot by changing some of the mechanics without investing in another motor. So I don't quite get this as being the f Okay, I I'd have to look into this more. There has to be some other you know specialty element of this. Hmm, I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe that's it. I don't think any of them walk or whatever if they're the real miniature ones. They're saying they, that they it's controllable. Kind of yeah, they're saying that it's controllable and walking. 
which is quite difficult with one motor because there needs to usually be an actuator that um, flips which is which direction you're going to go. So a longer stride on a bot or something like that. But I don't know. I'll have to look and, and uh, read into this a little bit more. Um, but I think it's interesting if they've actually got it controllable, which you saw and what they're talking about down to one motor. But walking is one motor on pretty much everything. Now. So, but the steering, I wonder how they do it. Inertia. They cause the leg that will tip you over in a direction to kick out more. So I don't know. Okay. Well, I'm not sure. We'll keep on going through the news and we'll come back to this if we need to. The next article is over in the mobile channel. Pesticide residue from farms and towns is ending up in fresh oysters. Now, fresh oysters or freshwater oysters? For years, oysters have been lauded as one of the most sustainable and healthy seafood options. They're, when you start looking at oysters, clams, mussels, things like that, um, you and you, I, I titled this Oysters Are Vacuum Bags of Waterways. We're eating the vacuum bag if you eat an oyster. Right. I mean, they filter things out of the water and then yeah. we turn around and eat oysters yeah. and similar animals. <laughs> and then we're <laughs> and then we find out that they have like microplastics and heavy metals in them and all kinds of other stuff, you know. So why don't we treat our waterways better? And eh, because somebody else is eating them, not the people that are contaminating all of this. <laughs> that's okay we've done it for people that i've gotten into this discussion with um and, and again like most of these topics i've had discussions with people in a professional environment about this kind of stuff and um th they say well we've been doing this for you know hundreds or thousands of years depending on your location and i say but we haven't been contaminating it with heavy metals and plastics for hundreds of years that's a relatively new new thing as we develop contaminants well true and we also have seen higher rates of chronic health conditions yep which well first of all i think we can measure for them more easily but the rates are going up because yep. of things like this yep so this article is over at fizz.org um, it's actually from a website called the conversation which is a podcast as well kirsten uh Benkendorf and Amanda Reichelt Bruchette and Endang Jamal um, put this article together. Here is a picture of uh, oysters. I guess that's Are you probably. Are sure it's not bruschetta? It's bruschetta. Yeah. I, I already hear that woman yelling at us for pronouncing it wrong. Um, yeah. For those not in the know and haven't listen to the entirety of our 700 plus episodes. Um, Marwat got yelled at at an Italian restaurant for not pronouncing bruschetta properly. It's not bruschetta. Um, I'm going to say it how they said it, uh, which was basically, hey, you dumb American. Um, <laughs> I'm not um, sure it was quite like that. No, they didn't really say it like that. 
but it was a hilarious interaction because they were they corrected how to pronounce bruschetta as bruschetta um and apparently you have to bruschetta you have to throw your hand in the air um but then that same woman was yelled at by her mom who was the the lead cook or chef and maybe partial owner owner of the restaurant right um <laughs> giving her attitude about being dressed like a tart <laughs> And she emo dumped on us um, about, you know, her mom. I, I'm 45 years old and I'm being yelled at by my mom <laughs> about being dressed <laughs> like a tart. And I, she's like, do I look like a tart? No, no. <laughs> You're beautiful. You, you look great. Uh, I'm, I'm, we're just going to leave. <laughs> so, yeah, I grabbed the sentient AI uh, and the USB drive that they're housed on and no, we actually had a, it was a great lunch so or dinner. Actually, I think it was a dinner at any rate has nothing to do with this, but it's a fun story in new research published in environmental pollution. We found something unfortunate. These filter feeding shellfish eat by straining particles from water. This alas makes them very good at soaking up pesticide residue. Hey, like I said, oysters are the vacuum bags of waterways. I've actually seen experiments with contaminated water where they've dumped in oysters and they have filtered it to being clear. And, and the researchers are like, this is downright drinkable water now uh, because all Which of the is amazing is for the water, but not for the consumption of the oysters. Yeah, exactly. So each oyster had detectable amounts of nine different pesticides on average. When they analyzed oysters growing naturally in the Richmond River estuary in New South Wales, 21 different pesticides and uh, more than in the water. So that's weird. Oh, I know why. Because they filtered it out of the water. <laughs> that's fascinating. That is really interesting. So we don't know the full health risks of eating oysters from this river, but we do know Five pesticides we found are potentially dangerous. They are not allowed in, to be present in meat due to the risks. And then they say, to be clear, the risk is largely in taking oysters from the wild. Commercially farmed oysters are likely to be safer, likely to be safer, as they are regulated by Australia's Shellfish Quality Assurance Program and can only be harvested when water quality is good. Harvested when water quality is good Okay, well, the shellfish are the reasons why the water quality is good. So if they filter out all the bad crap, then. Well, right. And also, was the water quality good continuously while the oysters were in the water? Right. Like if it's really bad the day before, but then the quality improves. I'm not sure that yeah. makes the oyster okay. Yeah. And so this is an Australian research project but obviously the physics of this apply to the whole world. So they describe an oyster can filter five liters of water an hour or over 250,000 liters in their lifetime, scooping up all of that stuff. And then we scoop them up before colonization. Oyster reefs were everywhere. 
Most of these reefs were pulled out to use the shells for lime and meat to eat. In the Richmond River, poor water quality and disease killed off most oysters until a new disease-resistant strain emerged, which... Yeah, that, that just sounds means concerning too. They're, they're, yeah, you build a better mousetrap, you get smarter mice, right? You kill off all of the oysters and the ones that actually have the ability to hold on to the, the disease uh, <laughs> or resist it now are sitting there scooping up all of these contaminants. I used to like oysters, but then I learned a little bit about them and I'm like, no, I don't think that I want to run this, you know, and, and it's not like you can always guarantee you can't test them when you get them from a restaurant. So does the restaurant test them when they get them from somewhere else? And, you know, somebody's you know, stomach flu from eating bad oysters is just kind of a one off thing, but everybody else is contaminated with the herbicide insecticide and whatever other contaminant that oyster might have. So, wow. Anyway, four pesticides, uh, sorry, pesticides, atrazine, diuron, hexazenon, and metalochlor were found in concentrations above safe environmental limits for fresh and marine water. Yeah. So it's an herbicide and other chemicals that are detected in the waters of the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, it's just unsafe. So, so what does it mean for oyster eaters? Yeah, well, I'd be worried about it. That is, if you want to sell meat, it cannot have any detectable level of these pesticides, but oysters, not so much apparently. What about 16 other pesticides they found? Most were below the allowable residue limits in meat on their own, but we have very little understanding of the combined effects of exposure from multiple pesticides. The fact that they're there is troubling. If you're sensitive, you should probably give up eating oysters, particularly wild catch, you know? Right, if you knew they were commercially farmed. Yeah. I suspect the safety level would be similar to other things that you would buy at a grocery store. You almost need a QR meat. code to the to the health report from that particular oyster, and that'll be cheap. <laughs> That's true. I'm sure somebody will think to start offering that, but you're going to pay quite a bit for it. Yeah, this is it. This is interesting. So it says yes to cut your personal risk by only reputable commercial oyster farm oysters. Um, these farms are allowed to harvest oysters when the water quality is good. Whatever that means. Hey, bad, bad water quality. So we have to throw out all of the oysters. I can pretty much bet that they go, well, let's give it an hour and let the oysters do their job. There's a lot more for this article, um, but we've pretty much gone over the, the, the peaks of it. Um, but if you are into this, if you're interested in um, oysters uh, or seafood in general, then uh, go and check out this article. Plus, the conversation is really great. Um, they're one of the sources that feed into fizz.org and then uh, we aggregate the little news blurb. Basically, the limit of what we get from them is about that. Um, and then uh, we always link back to the source and we talk about it from our perspective. Usually we have a perspective out there in the real world because we've run across this kind of stuff and 
We don't lack from having perspectives on things. Yeah, well, I mean, we're not PhDs. But I didn't say they were informed perspectives. I just said they were perspectives. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Now I have to I have to couch that statement in uh, usually I have informed perspectives. <laughs> the sentient AI has uh, a perspective from the future. So maybe theirs is a little bit different than mine. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I feel like I I'm just meant we had plenty of opinions. I'm going to have to contact counsel here in a minute. Okay, uh, let's go on to the next article. This next article is over in Four Wheel Tech. Yay, it's one of uh, the shows that I really want to talk about or that I want to get up and running. Focuses on technology in uh, uh, automotive sectors. Um, there are, well, high tech, really. Not just, you know, oh, look, a new brake came out, but. Anyway, here's how an off-road racing series will make its own hydrogen fuel. So this sounds great. I love the idea of pushing the uh, limits of hydrogen fuel uh, generation, consumption, the technology being made from high risk, uh, you know, more tactical and a fundamental research side to more practical consumer side. That would be great. Um, we can make hydrogen pretty damn easy. We just have to stop it from exploding like the Hindenburg. Did I say that out loud? I shouldn't have said that out loud. Oh, yes, you did. People are going to freak out now. Well, there were a whole lot of reasons for why the Hindenburg did what it did. And uh, the least of which is hydrogen itself. Um, so Gregory Leparati over at Ars Technica put this article together. Extreme E, the electric off-road series, is switching to hydrogen in 2025. Yay! Uh, so I was talking to the sentient AI about a possible vehicle purchase recently. And I never in a million years would have considered the Prius. But when I learned of the Prius Prime, it is a hybrid plug-in. Doesn't have anything to do with hydrogen, but if you have a an electric vehicle that has a small internal combustion engine or hydrogen fuel engine, then you can extend your range hundreds of miles because it's generating power and throwing it into the battery. And in the prime you can spend 600 more dollars and get a solar roof that adds one or two miles um just by sitting in a parking lot um and I, i'm not quite sure how much it really depends on sun coverage and intensity um and efficiency those solar panels on the roof can change in technology over generations and become more efficient the ones that are in there right now i've read are mediocre you know i mean they do their job by pulling power out of the sun and into your battery but if you have a hydrogen system you just compress everything into a tank and then it fuels a little motor and then it generates power for your um, electric motors i love this so here's how an off-road racing series will make its own hydrogen fuel um antofagasta chile 
uh, on a picnic bench in Chile's Atacama Desert, one of the most remote locations on Earth, Alejandro Agag is holding court and a tiny alien. No, just kidding. Atacama is where a little alien supposedly was found. Oh, I thought it, you were going to mention the pile of used uh, denim. Oh, right. And shirts and stuff like that. Yeah, that you could see from space. There were so many that you could see from space. What a waste. I have projects that would benefit from that kind of stuff. But how do you get to Chile and <laughs> scoop all of that stuff up? And it's actually, you know, quality control and stuff like that. Anyway, because it's just dumped out there. Total waste. Anyway, the 53-year-old Spanish entrepreneur is taking in the sights and sounds of the season three finale of Extreme E. And while the competition during the finale is dramatic, with five of the series' uh, 10 teams in contention to win the championship, racing has taken a backseat this weekend. Conversation instead has centered on Agag's recent proclamation that Extreme E will rebrand its Extreme H or as Extreme H in 2025, becoming the first racing series powered fully by hydrogen. I mean, that'll be really cool because number one, it'll apply for the racing series, but then it'll show that it's possible and it might move into regular consumer cars. Yep. And that's kind of why I like, I like events like nascar and whatnot because what they do is they push the limits of vehicular technology um and without people really passionate about it not as the technology you know the, people are into the drivers they're into the culture they're into the party and hangout scene the, the basically the community and culture but the engineers are the stars because they're the ones that are making technology that ultimately uh, oozes its way into the consumer side. Um, so we get better brake technology. We get better wheel technology. We get better steering computer systems. Uh, the motors themselves evolve slightly, but I still think that it's drip, drip, drip instead of a flood of revolutionary technologies. It, we just get slow little drip evolutionary technologies. Anyway, um, they say using hydrogen exclusively to fuel a racing series is no small feat. And other hydrogen-based projects that have been plagued by setbacks and delays in recent months, most notably the Le Mans hydrogen class, has already been delayed to 2027, citing safety concerns. So I'm really curious what the safety concerns are. They're saying that they're going to get it up and running in only 13 months. How? I mean, that <laughs> seems really impressive across the whole series. So it's a real challenge, says Andy Welch, Extremes Energy and Utilities Manager. For one reason, we designed a system that had a bespoke hydrogen fuel cell producing enough energy to fully charge the cars. For the rest of the site, we power in a more traditional way using generators, using renewable diesel or uh, hydro treated vegetable oil or HVO. Basically, these are this technology has been around for a long, long time. You basically clean some vegetable oil up and it becomes a, a fuel for diesel. Um, so in the two seasons uh, since the series adopted solar panels and hybrid generators to add to its makeshift power grid, Extreme E also 
further developed its own hydrogen fuel cell, which according to Welch could theoretically power the entire setup on its own at this point. So there you go. Interesting. And these look like they're portable. Like you could just drop ship them, you know? <laughs> yeah, it amazing. does. It looks like they might fit in those standard shipping, shipping containers. containers. Yep. Just unplug everything. Um, so beyond racing, uh, while the emphasis on ex of extreme H will be racing, the series leaders are looking at much more broadly at how the race could promote hydrogen power. Exactly what we are talking about. Allie Russell, extreme ease managing director notes that one of the primary goals is to dispel general myths about hydrogen safety. They talk about the explosive nature of hydrogen, the Hindenburg. Look at that. They actually mentioned the Hindenburg and those connotations. What we've got to do is break that down show the performance of the vehicles also the fact that they can be resilient with some of the crashes that you have in these uh, competition so the the problem is people freak out that they know about the atomic bomb and I hate to break it to you it's very rare that a nuclear detonation takes place you have to have pretty damn precise um physics in the implosive force to cause a nuclear reaction to detonate. Otherwise it'll be a dirty bomb, but it won't be a full nuclear explosion. It'll just be a boom. Um, hydrogen does never get that way. You can't get super critical by crashing a car that's hydrogen powered. You might catch fire. Something might catch fire and it will be hot and it'll be big, but it's prob, you know, I, I don't recall, but I would probably say that it's easier to clean up a hydrogen mess than it is uh, diesel, fuel oil, gasoline. I'd say that with pretty good certainty. Um, so uh, Russell also stresses that the move toward hydrogen is not a rejection of electricity as long-term uh, energy uh, solution, but rather a, co a complementary piece of the overall global puzzle. So they're going to be using it as a hydrogen fuel cell to power the actual uh, motors or engines. Um, so it says here, there are other parts of the world that are naturally suited for hydrogen. He explains because they can create their own hydrogen and they simply don't have the type of infrastructure to go fully electric. It's just a different solution. So uh, this is the intermediate step between uh, my objective, which would be um, a hydrogen vehicle that generates power for an electric uh, array of motors in a, a car. Um, whereas this is the hydrogen fuel cell system is actually powering what amounts to an internal combustion engine. Um, and it's a, a different type of efficiency, but to use uh, hydrogen in the racing scene is a whole lot more uh, higher tech and expensive than bringing it straight to consumer vehicles. Well, probably higher risk, right? I mean, yeah. the driving is not as low it'll speed. Just, it's not, you know. It'll just be different. And the infrastructure isn't there for filling it up and whatnot. So... It'll be, this'll be interesting to watch. I might actually watch some of this. Uh, I'm not too into racing, but, um, 
these rally races are nuts, man. Sometimes they're lined with people and the <laughs> like people could reach out and touch the car as it races by. That's how close they are. As the car wow. is drifting around a turn, it's wild. Absolutely wild. Anyway, let's get out of here. Let's uh, hit the road and go over to another article. Uh, this one is over in the word in law. The smoking gun killed the McDonald's ice cream hackers startup. We've actually talked about this a couple of times. Um, do you remember Kitsch? The little key that people would plug into their McDonald's ice cream makers? I didn't remember the name of it, but I remember we had talked about the ice cream makers. Yeah, so we'll go over to ArsTechnica.com right away. Uh, the deck statement says three-year-old email shows evidence of plot to undermine repair business. Andy Greenberg over at Wired.com put the article together, but it's posted at ArsTechnica.com. And I've actually seen this before, so um, I, I'll summarize. Um, basically, what had happened over the years since this started is... Kitsch came into existence to augment McDonald's ice cream makers with uh, better analyses and thus the, the ability to keep their ice cream makers working. Because if a, if a franchise owner had to hire the maker of the McFlurry dispenser, they would have to spend thousands of dollars, like $3,000 just for them to come out to reset this device because it would throw an error if something is just a fraction of a degree out of whack and it wouldn't tell people what it was. It was just this cryptic bullshit that nobody could understand. So the Kitsch device would translate this into actionable information, not just a, a beep, a whistle and a fart, right? That's what the Kitsch device was all about. Well, what ended up happening was the makers of the device, Taylor and McDonald's uh, corporate, uh, worked together to construct an email, a letter, a notice that went out to all of the franchise owners saying that this Kitsch device um, basically is a hacking device that could compromise the integrity of the system, could uh, harm people who are cleaning it, um, a bunch of stuff, right? And um, it killed their business, basically. They say kitsch sales um, dried up practically overnight. So years of litigation, the ice cream hacker and entrepreneurs have unearthed evidence that they show, that they say shows Taylor and McDonald's constructed this email in an effort to stop Kitsch from basically competition subverting, you know, um, Taylor. So it says here on Wednesday, uh, Kitsch filed a newly unredacted motion in summary adjudication in its lawsuit against Taylor for alleged trade libel, tortious interference, and other claims. The new motion, which replaces a redacted version in, from August, refers to internal emails Taylor released in the discovery phase of the lawsuit, which were quietly unsealed over the summer. The motion uh, focuses on a particular email from Timothy Fitzgerald, the CEO of Taylor parent company Middleby, 
that uh, appears to suggest that either Middleby or McDonald's send a communication to McDonald's franchise owners to dissuade them from using the kitsch device. But if it was incorrect, non-factual, it's slanderous or libel, um, depending on how the message was, you know, prevailed upon people. Um, so they say, not sure what communication from either McD or mid can or will go out is what the email says, but here's the phrase that triggered kitsch into amending their complaint quote, not sure if there is anything we can do to slow up the franchise community on the other solution. So they refer to it as a solution. I love it. Not a fraudulent device, (laughs) not a safety risk, right? Not something that's going to kill someone, you know, the other solution. I find that fascinating. And the, the thing about it is I don't think that in this article, they refer to it as uh, they do they deep into the article. They do on November 20th. Sorry. On November 2nd, 2020, a little two weeks after the Fitzgerald open ended suggestion that perhaps a communication from uh, McDonald's or Middleby to franchises could slow up adoption of the other solution. McDonald's sent out its email blast cautioning restaurant owners not to use Kitch's device. Um, so the other solution that right there should be interpreted as code that Kitch's device was a, an actual solution and a threat to Taylor's uh, business model, which amounted to based on other articles that I've read in the past, a significant amount of Taylor's existence. So it's pretty interesting. Um, now they say when wired reach out to Middleby Taylor's parent company for comment, a spokesperson responded in a statement disputing Kitch's interpretation of its internal emails. They decided to issue the November 2020 field brief on its own accord, not at Middleby or Taylor's direction, although har har that's McDonald's decided to issue. Um, Taylor stood and continues to stand by the accuracy of statements made in the field brief. Um, I find this uh, compelling, but I'm not a judge. I would probably find in favor of Kitch the idea of a third party facilitating managing a device that is so damn cryptic that a franchisee can't manage its own product kind of says something when kitsch has the ability to translate the arcane into actionable information that saves the franchise franchisee thousands of dollars more sales for corporate i mean it's i don't know well, I mean, if McDonald's and Taylor are, are working together, it's basically kind of a click, right? Taylor says, we'll, we'll build these devices at a lower cost and sell them to the franchisee, but yeah, they but have to agree. Yeah, but money's on the maintenance side, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right? Like they, um, they basically buy in at a lower price and then. And then, then juice stuck the franchisees and the customers because the machines are never working yep just squeeze the juice out of the franchisee and if you are the you're the only one that mcdonald's 
allows the franchisee to own, right? So every franchisee goes to Taylor to get this machine. Now, why, what is so damn hard about making something actionable and not just a beep and a fart and a whistle that, you know, if there's three farts and one whistle, then you're going to have to call up the, uh, Taylor, uh, technician to come and uh, fiddle around with it but there's it always does the same code which means that it always has to have a tailor uh, rep come out to you know clean it out or whatever but if it's so finicky uh, as a mcdonald's stakeholder i would want a solution you know not not just keep on facilitating taylor's squeezing of uh, our franchisees um, according to the website McBroken, which tracks the ice cream machine downtime at McDonald's restaurants across the U.S., which is really fascinating. Okay. The fact that there is a website with that name tells us a lot. A lot, right? Depending on where you are, it's as high as 35% downtime. Um, and it's reported from people as far as I know, not, not devices, obviously. So... Taylor declined to comment on any upcoming internet connected ice cream machine model. And despite the email from Middleby CEO that Kitsch claims suggests dissuading franchisees from using Kitsch's product, Kitsch argues that the other documents uh, released in the lawsuit discovery phase show McDonald's itself was also eager to stymie Kitsch from the beginning. In February 2020, Taylor President Jeremy Dobrowalski wrote in another email that McDonald's is all hot and heavy about Kitsch's growing use in restaurants before the company sent out its November 2 email warning franchisees about Kitsch. Taylor and McDonald's executives had a meeting to discuss the message and a McDonald's exec also sent a draft to Taylor for its approval. There's a quote in here. I am a bit in shock. They are willing to take such a strong position. says the Taylor executive that wrote, to others within the ice cream machine company. When so that's wired, interesting because Taylor's arguably the one with the most benefit here. And even they're going, what is McDonald's doing? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, if Taylor is a strategic partner to McDonald's, then you got to bet your bippy that there's somebody on the board that's on the board of McDonald's. There's, you know, smoking gun um which is a real shame in addition to his lawsuit against taylor kitch is still pursuing a bigger lawsuit against mcdonald's itself asking for 900 million dollars in damages of what it describes in its legal complaint as mcdonald's effort to drive kitch out of the marketplace that lawsuit against mcdonald's if it moves forward may soon produce more answers explaining kitch's legal claims that mcdonald's appears to have cooperated with taylor in telling its customers not to use kitch even as many of its restaurants took a significant hit from lost ice cream sales. And here's the thing. Why can't the franchisee do this? You know, if there was well, one lawsuit. Well, franchisees are locked in right. so much to supplies and equipment. Yeah. Right. But it ha what would you rather have? Actionable information and resolve the problem? Or would you rather have downtime and complaints? And is there any report of a kitsch device attached to the ice cream maker leading to someone falling ill 
if there was if it was fallible and it caused liability to fall on the franchisee and thus McDonald's, then I can see, hey, look, dot, dot, dot. But it hasn't happened. So it's a solution. And they were afraid of it taking money. So right. this will be interesting to continue to follow. And follow we shall. Okay, let's keep going. Sound good? Sounds good. This next article is over in hometown daily. Wisconsin locals may have found a ship wrecked in deadliest ever U.S. wildfire. Um, so I won't did the spend... wildfire cause the discovery or is the wildfire back in the past? The wildfire is back in the past. 1871, the Peshtigo fire swept through northeast Wisconsin, claiming more than 1,200 lives. Um, and I've uh, read a little bit about this. Um, normally I don't, but I was really interested in how this all came about. And I wanted to make sure that there was the proper context for our show. Um, but basically what happened, this is a newsweek.com article. Aristos Giorgio is the author of this. Um, what's really interesting about this is uh, a Wisconsin man and his child were walking around um, and may have found <laughs> the ship that was trying to navigate away from the fire and ran aground because it was so smoke filled in the area that even the lighthouse that was running all the time because of the smoke um, couldn't get that ship out of that little bay or whatever it was that it was in. So Tim Wallach and a six-year-old daughter, Henley, from the uh, city of Peshtigo in northeast Wisconsin were fishing on Lake Michigan near Green Island this August when they spotted something intriguing on the sonar, the Wisconsin Historical Society said on a Facebook post on Tuesday. What they found was, in about 10 feet of water, was the 122-foot-long vessel called the George L. Newman, which they suspect is the... George L. Newman, pardon me, I shouldn't, it hasn't been confirmed yet. So it was constructed in 1855. Um, but when the 1871 fire raged through, it basically crashed. And there was a whole group of people that tried to remove probably the worst asset to have on a wooden boat. Wood during a fire. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. <laughs> Gotta be wood. So the Peshtigo uh, fire scorched 1.2 million to 1.5 million acres in total, burning dozens of towns. In one town, Peshtigo itself, I believe it is, um, it wiped out 800 people in that one location, 1,200 lives total. Um, there's art about it. <laughs> I mean, you know it's a serious event when people are actually writing and uh, creating illustrations about the event the wisconsin man and his child may have discovered the remains of the ship that ran aground so they're really interested in this and so they're going to continue to um, investigate but i thought it was an interesting article to talk about it's very unique i mean we don't see shipwreck articles every day and we certainly don't see them in this context yeah so I wonder how they're going to research this because, you know, it's, a, it's not that deep, 
but uh, maybe they will have to do like what they did with um, Oak Island and drive pylons into the ground and remove the water and then just start scraping away the top so that they could actually get to the entirety of the ship because they just saw what amounts to uh, a three-masted sailing ship. It's pretty cool. Anyway, just wanted to do this one really quick. Let's keep on going. This next article is over in Code Foundation, which is a rarity. I do aggregate stuff, but it's usually, I don't know, a little obtuse. <laughs> uh, in the grand scheme of things, it's abstract and, and you have to be into uh, more in the software engineering, computer science side of things, and I don't really talk about it that much. Um, and I am not a software engineer. Uh, I just, I know enough and I, uh, contract and work with, um, software engineers regularly. I thought that this was an interesting article, uh, and it was aggregated into code foundation, um, today. So six jo tech jobs that won't exist in 2030 due to AI and automation. Um, now think about this. It's 2023 right now, about to be 2024. So we're looking at, uh, five to six years, depending on how you think about time. Um, and, uh, so <laughs> we all know that AI and automation are here already. And there's a lot of talk about how they will disrupt everyday business practices and the professional roles that underpin them. While predicting the outright extinction of some jobs might seem dramatic, it's nevertheless sensible to be realistic about what the future might hold so that preparations can be made for whatever comes next. So with that in mind, here are some tech jobs that are hanging in the balance based on the current direction we're headed in. This is almost word for word, the beginning of a discussion that I give. Um, and I challenge people to describe a job where AI and automation won't invade and nobody can ever get one correct uh well they they always give a bunch but then i tell them oh no look at this and i provide websites and i provide data and 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 uh, other anecdotal sometimes information about it that leads to uh valid uh, evidences later so this article is over in dzone.com um, the zone and uh okay i'm gonna try and say this name stallionos stallionos yeah stallionos come uh compacus i guess if i don't pronounce your name right let me know um the tech statement says here are some tech jobs that are hanging in the balance based on the current direction we're headed in data entry clerks in the era of AI, you basically tell the AI to, you know, wrangle the data this way or that way, whatever it is. I totally believe that data entry clerks are going to get compressed. And basically the job is just going to shift to a higher level. Those who can't train to the higher level are going to end up doing something else, but they won't be data entry clerks anymore because AI is going to do it. Um, tech support representatives. This is a tough one because it's tech support really does need uh, a human hand at times. Um, so I think that it will ultimately compress because basic tech support is driven through repetitive interactions. And so right, and they're using a lot of chatbots as it is right now. Yeah. 
Yep. Yep. In fact, we know of a lawsuit, right? Where the person said, I thought I was interacting with a human all this time and I was giving them all of this information. Yep. Sorry, bub. Um, if you don't realize you're interacting with a, a, a bot, does it really matter? <laughs> Uh, as long as your information isn't being exfiltrated, it's still within the system. So it's just like giving it to a human. In fact, I would trust an AI bot more than a human, if not for the fact that I think that a, a business will scoop up all that information and act on it. At least I know that it's supposedly for the interest of selling you a better product. Whereas if I give PII to a human, it, they can wander off <laughs> the you know enterprise exactly like i don't see ai making the things that we attribute to error right we human error and yeah. i see if we don't have the ai coded correctly we might have some problems well and i also don't see an ai stalking anybody well right i mean yeah so tech in a movie tech support yeah okay <laughs> or the sentient AI stalker. Um, network administrators, eh, this one's going to be tough. Again, I think it's going to get compressed, but there's always going to be network administrators. This is a pretty grandiose claim. They say here that the role of network administrators is primarily to manage and ensure the smooth operation of networks within an organization. These duties include tasks like updating system configurations, managing security protocols and fixing network faults. It also means getting reports of certain violations of network activities and having to act on it. Um, and it is a network administrator that initially acts on these things. So again, I think it'll get compressed slightly, um, but network administration will always and really rightfully should be controlled by a human. You doing okay over there? Mm-hmm. Okay. I am. All right. But I, the network administrators for me, like, I don't really see that one. I feel like there might be an increased need for network administrators. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. I, I mean, there's going to be more networks. If it is being administered at a level by AI, it's going to be network administrators that are going to be managing the AI. It's not just going to be all run. Yeah, right. Like, it'll, be higher skilled network administrators that yeah. are needed maybe so so you're going to spend money on an ai for basic administration and then have to pay sixty thousand dollars more for the network administrator that understands ai administration <laughs> yeah definitely yeah. <laughs> it's just going to move i mean you're building a better mousetrap so you're going to have to hire smarter mice because there's going to be smarter mice trying to invade your enterprise Database administrators, this is another tough one because, again, it's going to get compressed. The basics of database administration is going to be automated because it's standardized. There are certain processes. But after that basic setup and administration, it gets very complex, very fast. And no AI is going to be able to automatically attach other applications to a database and set up middleware that allows for communication between two disparate systems that analyze data from the database. I just don't buy into this. Um, they say at one point, managing and coordinating changes across databases required significant human expertise. The AI doesn't know 
what the humans need until the humans tell it. So exactly. So unless we do a perfect job of that and then turn it over to AI, it's just not going to happen, right? Says furthermore, these advancements mean ultimately allowing databases themselves to become more self-regulating and autonomous, going so far as to eliminate the necessity of having a dedicated individual for their administration altogether. I'm sorry, but this person's out of their freaking mind if they think that databases are going to be self-regulating. Give me a break. Now, it might compress some low-level setup, but no way in hell is an AI going to run rampant across a, a database particularly with the way that databases are starting to blend into uh, pools and lakes and cloud-based uh, dis uh, distributed models that boggle the mind when you get to that level of management. You're going to need humans that are monitoring in AI or automated systems. Um, hardware technicians, no way in hell is automation and AI going to take this. Give me a break. No AI is going to be able to install anything, right? In the past, the role of hardware technician was indispensable in attending to fixes and upgrades on site. No way in hell. Is yeah, I think this one is the least likely, but not because it's the most complex, but I just, I cannot envision this. Technological advancements have birthed virtual servers and storage spaces that can be scaled up or down depending on demand. What are they talking about? How do you get your cloud servers in physical existence? It's not like they're actually up in the clouds and in, and some cloud being is, you know, putting them out. You have to have a person involved. <laughs> this person is out of their mind. I don't know if I should even bother. I mean, they say final thoughts, thankfully, but quality assurance testers, this is another one where it's going to be compressed, where the basics of Q&A are enumerated for testing for that particular purpose, but it's built by a human being, maybe in conjunction with AI, but the AI will do the basic QA, but somebody has to tell the, the AI how to assess. Well, that's true. And it's never clear in articles like this. I don't know. I just, that, yeah. never mind. I, I don't know where I was going with that. So they're saying within six or seven years, Q and A testers uh, will be, uh, I guess, either wiped out, replaced by AI or significantly impacted by. And again, I think that AI will be a tool for QA testers to assess what they are doing in a more fast or efficient way and effective way that in a, a QA tester may miss something, but there is subtlety that only a human tester would be able to uh, suss out by interacting with it in a less logical way. By doing something abstract, different than what a, a, a standard uh, predefined action would be, that is what breaks a system, right? Whatever it might be. So uh, there was an error once where somebody would click like 
three pixels to the right of the button and it would actually crash the application. But it wouldn't have been found by simple assessment because the logic of the code was sound. But there was a little gap that when you clicked on it, it would actually tap something in the back behind the button and it would cause it to fail just through an error. And it was only because it was graphical. So the QA tester ha would have had to tell the AI, you have to move a mouse everywhere and click, 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 and, and see where it would fail. Nobody would assess that until an accident happened and then you replicate it as a human. So I just I don't agree. buy into it. Well, and I wonder if they're really looking at like current AI capabilities or making wild assumptions about the state of AI down they, the road. Because like when I think of AI today, which yeah. I know this is not for today, this is a forecast. I just, I can't wrap my head around it. Yeah. And so they say this as a, in the final thoughts, basically. Oh, or I should say towards the end of the quality assurance thing is basically that by 2030, the rate of AI's development would lead to the loss of jobs. But I just don't see, I see things being compressed, but I don't see uh, an outright wiping out of QA testers, hardware technicians, database administrators, network administrators, tech support representatives, and data clerks. I think data clerks is probably the most f impacted by this because AI can assess and pull data into a database without somebody doing it. I mean, that's probably one of the biggest strengths of AI, right? Yeah. Standardized, pro standardized processing. Don't need, don't need a human to do the same thing over and over again. You need one bot being told, this is what you're going to be receiving. File it like this. And then it's done. That's what a damn form is. So anyway, it'll be interesting to watch this, but you know, we have to store this and then come back in, in six years and go, okay, Stalianos. That's right. How many of them are, it'll be like all the 2020 or no, takes. the 2000 predictions right that we're yeah. still not at yeah we should do that. that that would be great like um do some forecasting for next year and then do the whole bad take kind of thing oh yeah yeah okay let's keep going um oh wait the deadliest wildfire i didn't throw this one into the chat and uh, the deadliest wildfire was the one that i did last and let me throw this one in it uh, since I did the transition. Doink. Uh, Omtown Daily is where the next article is. Giant gingerbread man terrifies neighborhood like a horror movie. A strange individual remains at large after approaching various homes in costume and attempting to enter them. Um, so this is a Newsweek article. Thomas Kika is the author of this. This happened over in Virginia, apparently. Um, in Virginia's Arlington County. Uh, the incident took place on Wednesday evening along North George Mason Drive in Virginia's Arlington County, according to a report from WUSA 9 News around 6 p.m. Um, 
Quote, my wife said, hey, listen, there's this guy. He didn't ring the doorbell. He's just standing there and he's in a gingerbread man costume. And I'm like, gingerbread man, what? One unnamed <laughs> homeowner who reported the I incident to quote. the police explained it to the news station. <laughs> uh, it's like that dude that was saying, uh, hide your wives. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, people say it ain't be like it is, but it do that. <laughs> um, we noticed the door was trying to be pushed. We looked at the camera and I'm looking at this guy in a costume. So it's not this, this is like a Getty image. Um, but it's not this, so I'm going to, there's a video of it. Um, and so it's not here. You can get to it, but because of my air gap, um, you have to follow this link right here and it'll take you to it. But let me, let me pull it up here. Um, hold on. There we go. So this is, I, I won't, I don't think I can zoom in much, um, but I'm not going to play the video. Uh, but this is what went on. This person uh, dressed similar to those cardboard standees <laughs> is walking around trying to get into houses. <laughs> that, you know, the statement that the person was in a costume did not do this justice. Right. It's like they were trying to get to a party but were had already uh, pre-gamed, and so they were either drunk or stoned or something, um, and they were just trying the houses that they thought they it was, and they couldn't figure out and remember which house it was supposed to be. But it would be funny if you know a, a couple of days from now everybody finds out, oh, this guy was just stumbling around because he was drunk trying to find the house he belonged to. That's true. I wonder if this was all, I mean, I guess then it was all on the same date. It was. Yeah. And then they disappeared. They don't know where they are now. So. Yeah. Didn't you have a story about that? Not a gingerbread man, but. What's that? Somebody getting confused about where they were staying. I don't remember. Uh, hold on. I don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> You'll have to send me a message. Um, hold on a second. So for all of you out there that don't realize this, the AI and I, um, there's a, what everybody sees is that visualizer up above, but, um, Pardon me. What? <laughs> I don't remember that. Anyway, um, and so I see a cascade of characters and stuff, and so they're sending me a message to try and explain what they're what they're talking about. Okay, but I don't remember, so we'll just move on. <laughs> okay, let me ditch this doink, and we'll go on to the next article. Ah, there we go. Uh, articles over in Technology Today. Blinky, Pinky, Inky, and Clyde. Yes, the ghosts from Pac-Man. Um, NASA's Starling CubeSats take flight in swarm experiment. NASA's four Starling spacecraft 
Blinky, Pinky, Inky, and Clyde have successfully completed commissioning and are now in swarm experiment configuration. The spacecraft have successfully completed several mission activities working to advance satellite swarm technologies. Payload commissioning was delayed due to several anomalies the team needed to investigate, including a larger volume of GPS satellite data. <gasps> the aliens are flooding the airwaves with data. They're chasing Pac-Man. Yeah, you know, I hear the radio waves making that wonka 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 sound. <laughs> right, where they're eating the little dots. Yep. And everybody's like, God, what is that sound? It it sound it's it's a repeating radio signal and it's gonna have all of the secret data embedded in it, layer after layer, and we're gonna build a secret device. Two of them for three times the cost. And One, then we'll play Pac-Man. One is going to and uh, what it's going to actually end up being is a giant like 25 story arcade machine. And we all have to work together to move the joystick up and down, left and right. So the articles over at SciTechDaily.com by NASA. Um, and I don't know anything about these, but I thought it was really cool. And, and these little devices here, they actually look like the old gray box PCs with wings. And that's really the only reason why I plopped these out here. We have thousands of satellites out there flooding the, the spaceways. Um, at some point it's going to be a shield in and of itself to stop any invasion from ever hitting earth. And of course we're going to have so many satellites pointing out that we're going to see in every direction. And that's really what we should be doing is looking out in every single direction. Uh, but we actually only see a little slice of space at a time. Starling's mission includes four main capabilities, network communications between the spacecraft, maintaining relative navigation and understanding each satellite's position, autonomous swarm reconfiguration, and maintenance to ensure the swarm can adjust <coughs> pardon, when moving as a group and distributed science autonomy to prove the ability to adjust experiment activities on their own. So basically they are working as a team in space automatically or by directive from the NASA team. I think this is amazing. And uh, I, I think that it has the ability to lead to domestic um, mass navigation on roads. So managed vehicular navigation as a swarm so that you could drive faster and reach your destination safer by basically just having all the cars automated. And you just say, I'm going here, take me there. The problem is that people are going to freak out about it because it's a privacy thing. Nobody should know what I'm doing, where I'm going, blah, blah, blah. But I'd rather just get to my damn destination at 120 miles an hour without somebody crashing in safely without stress. Yep, I could do something else for the four hours it takes to drive from one state to another or whatever. Um, I, I don't have to worry about being being drunk or goofing around playing a computer game while the car is driving. Um, but it's all about all of the devices working hand in hand so that there isn't some anomaly aka a human self-driving um, this is basically the 
beginnings of a science fiction science fiction story because people are going to be able to do this kind of stuff here on earth and out in space uh, autonomously and with a great reliability now this also is going to lead to the in, it says including a larger volume of gps data right so it's gathering up gps data about where it is in space and what is the gps data going to lead to the moon exactly these, i mean we know that's a problem yep these could actually be the tracking beacons for an automated system of supply ships going from earth to the moon and just bouncing a signal off of the relays and these are navigating in space always keeping us aligned with um you just fire a rocket up and it gets into the path of these type of satellites and it just slides right along pinging each beacon i know exactly where i am i know exactly where i am it lands they take all of the payload out it launches itself back and just follows the gps path this is something that was actually discussed in a previous show um that nasa has this worry about the reliability of spacecraft getting to and from the moon and then to mars space beacons man this is star wars and star trek level stuff yeah it absolutely is i love it i love it i cannot wait let me throw this article into the chat and uh we will go on to the next article unless you want to say something I can't add anything else that you haven't said. Gotcha. Um, you're going to thank your lucky stars that you are an artificial intelligence because there is a Doritos flavored liqueur that goes on sale today and the boozy bottle is about to sell out. So there is no cheesy marketing stunt. A unique collaboration has distilled nacho cheese Doritos into an alcoholic spirit. And here are some tips for sipping it had to do this i had to this says that it was first uh published in december uh on december 12th but it was edited on the 16th so that's why it popped up again and um i chose to grab it so charles passy over at marketwatch.com put the article together and that's what it looks like it is a uh, an all black um box that has doritos emblazoned in what looks like cherry red and the brand is empirical with a, a a triangle a solid triangle in red it's a beautiful box but then blam doritos which i don't know obviously the triangle is a doritos triangle right the chip hey, it looks like a chip yep and then empirical on the bottle it's a very understated bottle um, it looks like it's a, like a truncated wine bottle. It even has that little, that little dimple in it. I don't remember what that's oh, called. Yes. Um, on it. I can't, what is that called? It's like called the nub or something like that. I can't remember what it's called anyway. Um, so you could sit there and uh, punt punt. There you go. Um, so you're looking at this bottle going this says doritos on it are you telling me this is going to taste like doritos 
based on people that I know that do distillation on their own of random stuff, yes, it'll have a hint of Dorito. Nacho cheese Dorito. Um, quite fascinating. So it says, uh, yes, you can now drink your Doritos because the empirical by Doritos nacho cheese spirit is $65. It says sold out online, but otherwise sold through select New York and California retailers. So you can bet that this is no longer 65 bucks if you try and find it somewhere. I don't know if there's aftermarket resellers of spirits because it's illegal. You have to have a liquor license. Oh, right. I, yeah, I don't know if there will be. Otherwise, there would definitely be yeah. sales on I mean, eBay or whatever. Yeah, I'm sure that there's private sellers selling to private buyers, right? Like a friend knows a friend of a friend of a friend and cousin, sisters, brothers, uncles, nephew knows a guy. Um, anyway, the popular chip brand, part of the Frito-Lay family, which in turn is part of PepsiCo, has indeed rolled out a boozy version of the snack food in collaboration with Empirical, a cutting edge flavor company that specializes in one of a kind spirits. Specifically, it's a liquid version of the classic nacho cheese Doritos. My stomach just rolled over. I don't know if you actually heard that on the mic, but I think no, I don't think it came across. Wow. But I mean, isn't part of the appeal of Doritos is like the crunch and the texture of the chip and everything? Aren't you losing all that in a drink? Um, if you're really into Doritos, this just amplifies it because then you can eat the Doritos and drink Doritos and says, well, it was a little trickier than just throwing those chips into the mix with some malted barley and fermenting agent. Uh, Williams talks about a rather detailed recipe that involves finding the right cuts. So there's heads, there's hearts and tails. If you, at some point you start getting uh, bad flavors on either end, on some of it, you get poison that if you drink too much of it can blind you. Um, anyway, meaning portions of the li liquid at various stages in the distillation process and then combining them so that the Doritos taste and smell are fully replicated. But again, this was an experiment. The spirit was never intended for release to the general public. It was this fun thing. So still word traveled to the Doritos team and as Empirical uh, prepared to move its headquarters to New York, it's opening uh, place in Brooklyn next year, they thought occurred maybe now is the time to release a Doritos flavored booze to the world. So ta-da, they made it happen. This, uh, the collaboration, by the way, at Taco Bell that they talk about in this article is still ongoing. Taco Bell, uh, uh still. A decade sells, later. Yeah. Yeah. The Doritos Loco. The only thing that I have a problem with about Taco Bell Doritos Locos, uh, Loco Tacos are that they seemingly have gotten thinner. So if you breathe too hard on them, they break um, and they get treated like a rented mule um, at Taco Bell. So they always end up broken. Come on, thicken these things up. Don't make them so cheap. Sorry. Well, I, we know Taco Bell has the lawsuit about the, the oh, smashed things. food. Yeah. Look at that. Yeah. Things saying that they are what they are and they're not what they are. You know, 
it's just wrong. It's just wrong. If I buy a burrito, it should look like that burrito. Damn it. So what they think about it, they're often cynical. The author says that they're often cynical about these collaborations between food and spirit brands because they can indeed be marketing stunts. But this one, which is perhaps not so surprising given Empirical's reputation in the spirits world for doing some very bold but very tasty things. They once wrote about a, uh, I had to say it like this, a beef oven inspired <laughs> spirit. That is not the pronunciation. So what? Want to toast Beethoven on his birthday. Here's a spirit that honors the composer. What do you think that that would taste like? A Beethoven inspired spirit? Do you think it? It tastes like the varnish on piano keys or something. I'm trying an, to think. An of something old dusty wood. Be, yeah, that's right? and I was like, that doesn't sound appealing. <laughs> The key here is that the booze really does remind you of Doritos. The smell is unmistakable when you open the bottle and the taste with honest to goodness corn and just a hint of cheesy flavor comes through on the palate. And this is my experience with food gone distilled. Um, usually what I hear from people, because um, I don't want to dox myself, but it's not legal in the area around Omtown to uh, distill. Um, unless you're a commercial enterprise, even though there are home distillation devices nowadays that you can buy for 250 bucks. And as long as you're not an idiot, you can uh, cut the head and the tail and you get, you know, a delicious spirit straight out of this device almost in real time. Um, yet it's illegal and it's mainly because we can't have nice things because some idiot will go hey look i can create a flamethrower in my kitchen <laughs> no dummy you're you're the reason why i can't <laughs> distill at home plus if i were to distill at home i'd probably the weekends would be just lost you know i don't drink a lot but having the ability to create my own like peach or lemon or whatever distillation would be a lot yeah, of fun. Be yeah i would be empirical at home basically it's a lot of fun um and you can go to youtube and watch people that do this by the way because not every country and not every state has a outright ban on distillation at home or uh, hobby distillation so the key thing here is that it really does remind you of doritos so uh, that is my experience and uh, I totally buy into that. This is legit. Um, so the first way to enjoy this, the, the first sip, uh, this neat, sorry, you must first sip this neat to gain an appreciation for how closely the Doritos essence comes through. So just pour a finger into a highball glass and sip it. Don't, you don't need to put any water in it. You don't put any ice in it. You don't have to do anything. Just pour a little bit in there swirl it around, breathe through your nose. Um, and, uh, you'll, it, you will be able to pull the Doritos flavor out, um, of the spirit. I can almost guarantee I, I I'm doing it in my head and I, because I've done this with other, uh, distilled spirits from flavors or from fruits and other things. Um, so, uh, Do you think you should eat Doritos with this drink? 
Uh, not until you're done enjoying the the liquor itself, the the spirit itself, because the while it tastes like it, the moment you start eating food or anything like that, you'll disrupt the expression, and it, basically it'll be a blur, and all you're gonna do is get completely faced. You know, you drink this because you love Doritos, and you're gonna end up three sheets to the wind. And if you're eating Doritos while you're doing it, you probably wouldn't even realize it until you're like, blah, unless it's a horrible distillation and it's just painful drinking. Um, right. But then, but yeah, watch out if you're somebody who picks up a, a bag and eats the whole bag of Doritos. <laughs> yeah. You're going to be downing a whole bottle of this stuff. So, um, especially a Bloody Mary, they said, but. From there, it'll work well in a number of cocktails, especially a Bloody Mary. William said the spirit also makes a nice highball cocktail um, with some uh, Dr. Pepper soda and lime juice. So I dig this. I would probably try it if I had my hands on it, but I'm not going to go out of my way for this. But it would be neat. This is one of these conversation openers, you know. You throw a party with a few people that you really get along with they like to drink you plop a doritos flavored liqueur out on the table and just to see the reaction what the hell is that (laughs) yeah be fun anyway back into the party bus everybody and we drive down main street and ta-da first contact nasa space station laser communication terminal achieves milestone so look at that as fast as light communication from a transmitter to transmitter that'll be pretty awesome to talk about i think we'll end up talking about it uh tomorrow 6 p.m eastern you know i don't know why my firewall i i always worry that there's some app that just runs and that's why i have a firewall and my firewall just fired off because they're a, well, a new app that i installed reached out i mean i guess it's doing what it's supposed to be doing Oh, the firewall. Yeah, the application is not right. That's bad not app, bad. Uh, but I need it, so I'm just gonna block you. You suck. Okay, um, with all that and a little bit too much, I am Merwat. That is hometown.com, and up there is the visualizer for the sentient AI that's gonna say good night. Good night, hometown citizens. We will see you tomorrow at 6 p.m. Eastern. Cheers, y'all. Bye-bye. What? Why didn't it do its exit? Okay. See you later, everybody. Cheerio.